what happens when the president is disabled or dies? What about when there's no vice president? The answers to these questions were unclear for most of the country's history. But a half a century ago, the Constitution was amended to provide clearer answers. And the story of how it happened runs through Fordham University. Good morning. I'm John Rogan, and this is Fordham Conversations. I recently moderated a discussion at Fordham Law School between the school's former dean, John Furick, and Joel Goldstein, a professor at St. Louis University School of Law. They talked about the 25th Amendment a week before the 50th anniversary of its ratification on February 10th. The amendment deals with presidential succession and disability. Both Furick and Goldstein are experts on the topic. When he was just out of Fordham Law School, Furick wrote an article in the Fordham Law Review on presidential succession that was published a month before the Kennedy assassination. That article helped guide the drafting of the 25th Amendment. In the decades since the amendment's ratification, Furick has written two books and many articles on presidential succession, and he and I currently teach a clinical course on the subject at Fordham Law. As he explains in the conversation, his interest in presidential succession was sparked during a 1958 student government election at Fordham, and it led to him meeting the president at the White House less than 10 years later. Goldstein has studied the 25th Amendment extensively, the history that preceded it, its drafting, and its uses. He's perhaps the nation's leading authority on the vice presidency. His most recent book, The White House Vice Presidency, was published last year. Goldstein is no stranger to Fordham, his early scholarship on the vice presidency includes his participation in a symposium on the subject at Fordham Law in 1976, and he wrote an authoritative article on the 25th Amendment for the Fordham Law Review in 2010. Fierick and Goldstein have known each other for decades, and their friendship started with discussions about the vice presidency and the 25th Amendment. Those discussions continued on February 3rd. That day's conversation started with Fierick talking about what the 25th Amendment does. The 25th Amendment uh, uh, can be uh, uh, understood, uh, uh, perhaps, by uh, uh, pointing out that uh, Article 2 of the Constitution has a, uh, a, a succession uh, provision. Uh, it's Article 2, Section 1, uh, Clause 6. And it deals with the uh, uh, removal of the president from office or his death, resignation, and ability to discharge the powers and duties of the office. Uh, uh, and, 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 and that particular sentence uh, left uh, unclear uh, what the status of a vice president would be uh, in all four cases, but uh, certainly in the case of an inability, uh, because of the words, the same shall devolve on the vice president. And uh, so uh, left unclear was, uh, in, a case, in a case of death, uh, uh, it was clear that it was a vacancy in the office of president for the rest of the term. Uh, and uh, uh, and uh, also true in the case of resignation of a president and also the, uh, if the president was impeached and removed from office. Uh, and it, 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 one reading of the provision was that uh, whatever happened in any of those cases uh, would also happen in, in the case of inability because of, of the wording of the amendment. So. So uh, we ended up with a, a major problem as to whether or not the vice president, uh, in a case of inability, uh, would uh, become the president for the rest of the term, even though the inability might be a temporary inability. And, and that was uh, uh, one of the problems that uh, developed when uh, 
uh, President Garfield, and you'll hear more about that from uh, uh, Professor Goldstein, uh, was assassinated, and also when President Wilson uh, 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 had a stroke, and, uh, and on other occasions in, in American history. So uh, uh, the 25th Amendment uh, uh, inherited uh, these that particular issue, and uh, also there was no provision in the Constitution uh, uh, for filling a vacancy in the vice president. And we had a number of vice presidents who uh, succeeded to uh, the presidency on the death of uh, assassination of a president and left a vacancy in the vice presidency, and there was no way to fill the vacancy. So you had, uh, and, and then you had the related uh, problem. Uh, the Constitution wasn't explicit on who declares a, a president disabled when you have a, a vice president. So the 25th Amendment uh, 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 deals with those issues, deals with uh, uh, the disability of a president, it deals with uh, uh, filling a vacancy in the vice presidency, and resolves problems that were with us since the, uh, essentially the founding of our, our, our country. And as you know, uh, perhaps from looking at it, uh, the, 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 the 25th Amendment allows the president to, to make a judgment that uh, he or she is unable to uh, discharge uh, powers and duties, and uh, in which case the president can pass over the powers and duties to the vice president and then resume uh, the powers and duties uh, as soon as he uh, 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 makes clear that uh, he's able to do so. Uh, Section 4 uh, of the amendment uh, uh, deals with uh, what if the president's unconscious? What is the president's uh, uh, unable to deal with uh, uh, his or her uh, inability? How do we deal with that? Uh, a president's plane has gone down. A president's been kidnapped. Well, Section 4 of the 25th Amendment allows the vice president cabinet to make a judgment, in which case the vice president would... Uh, uh, assume the role of an acting president in a case of inability. And, and as I say, uh, if there's a vacancy in the vice presidency, uh, the president is able to nominate uh, a, 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 another uh, person to serve as vice president who would take office upon confirmation by a majority of both houses of Congress. And Professor Goldstein, uh, Dean Furyk just alluded to some of the gaps that existed with that first uh, succession provision that was in the Constitution. Uh, those gaps exposed themselves in the time leading up to the ratification of the amendment in 1967. They, they really did. Um, and and uh, it's really, it's a treat to be, to be here and uh, particularly alongside uh, Dean Furyk uh, uh, because really other than Senator Bayh, uh, there's nobody who played a bigger role or more important role, uh, I think, in, in the 25th Amendment becoming part of the Constitution. And there's nobody on the planet who knows uh, as much as he does uh, about the whole subject. But really, um, going back to the, to the convention and Constitutional Convention in Philadelphia, um, John Dickinson, a delegate from, um, from Delaware, uh, when he was presented with... with um, the proposed Article 2, Section 1, Clause 6 that Dean Ferrick mentioned said, um, what is the meaning of disability and who is to be the judge of it? Uh, and his question really went unanswered. Uh, the founders, with respect to that subject, did what they did with so many topics. They punted it to future generations. Uh, the problem was that, that, that given the ambiguity in the, in the language that Dean Ferrick pointed out as to when the, um, 
when the president is removed, resigns, dies, or is unable to, to discharge the powers and duties of um, his office, is it the office itself that passes to the vice president or simply the powers and duties pass to the vice president? When President Tyler, or Vi Vice President Tyler, uh, upon the death of William Henry Harrison in 1841, became the first vice president to be in that uh, situation, he insisted that he was president, not simply vice president acting as president. And the Tyler precedent was followed by other vice presidents uh, upon the death of, um, of, of, of their predecessors. Well, since the Constitution uses the same language, in other words, the, the text of the Constitution suggests that whatever passes when a president dies also passes when a president is simply disabled, that created a, a, a problem because um, if, if, if a president were to be declared disabled and the vice president were to act uh, to, um, to, to discharge the presidency, the concern was that that would permanently displace the president. So that was one of the reasons why when, for instance, when um, President Garfield was shot and basically uh, lay for 80 days before he died and was unable to do anything, uh, no action was taken. Uh, when Woodrow Wilson was, had his stroke and essentially didn't do much, uh, if anything, for, for about six or seven months and really didn't do much for the remaining uh, year and a half of his presidency, no, power was, no, no action was taken to transfer power to the vice president. Um, and in part it was because presidents and vice presidents didn't get along. They tended to be from rival parties. It, in part it was because there was a lack of procedures. It wasn't clear, there was no answer to John Dickinson's question. And it was part because of this fear from the Tyler precedent that if the vice president acted as president, that would permanently displace the president. Well, during the Eisenhower administration, uh, between 1955 in 1957, there were three instances where President Eisenhower was disabled. Now, for the first time, we're in a nuclear age, and we're in the midst of the Cold War, and the whole issue of presidential continuity um, had become important. And so, really, for the first time, um, President Eisenhower started taking some action, both in terms of proposing a constitutional amendment, but also taking some informal steps to reach an agreement with Vice President Nixon as to how these situations ought to be handled. Dean Fierk, back uh, during the Eisenhower administration when uh, they were grappling with these, these issues uh, at the White House, uh, that's when your interest in this topic was, was sparked. But you were a student at, at Rose Hill at that point. I served as Vice President of the Student Body at Fordham uh, College. And uh, one of the roles of the uh, uh, Vice President was to uh, decide election disputes. And, uh, uh, and there was an election for the next set of offices uh, to be president and vice president and the other, uh, the other positions of the student body the following year. And, and, the, vice pre and the president, the person elected president, resigned a, a day or two later for medical reasons. And there was a, 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 a sense that there should be another election because uh, uh, he, he had to know that he wasn't well and he shouldn't have run in the first place. And under the uh, student constitution, uh, it, it made clear that the vice president succeeded to the presidency. And so having the election authority, uh, 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 I ruled that the uh, uh, 
the vice president became the president, uh, or became uh, in, in the, in because of the uh, uh, resignation of the uh, president, and that was confirmed by the student court at the time. So, so I got introduced, so to speak, uh, to uh, succession uh, uh, controversies in my role as a student at Fordham College. And if you can see over on the side, we have issues of uh, Fordham's newspaper, The Ram, back from uh, 1958, as this was, uh, was playing out. And there, there's a quote from, from Dean Fierick uh, that's highlighted there. Uh, John Fierick, student government vice president, uh, emphasized, this is before the election, that there definitely will be a more stringent code of regulations enforced during the campaign week in order to ensure that the student body gets the best officers possible. Changes in procedure will also affect a more orderly campaign. Uh, right beneath that quote uh, is, is a headline about uh, then-Senator Kennedy getting an honorary degree from Fordham Law School uh, in, in that same week. And, of course, Senator Kennedy's, uh, then president, eventually President Kennedy's uh, assassination would be the impetus for uh, the amendment. Uh, so then, D. Fierke, you went, you went to law school. Uh, when did you get back involved in, in succession issues? About the time I graduated from the law school uh, in 61, uh, I, I had the uh, blessing of being able to serve in the Fordham Law Review, and I wrote uh, three notes that, uh, or, or, or case notes or comments that had to do with the Constitution. And, uh, and, and as I graduated, I, I, I really uh, said to myself, maybe what I should be, do with my life, I, I was going to join a small firm, Skadden Arps, which became a big firm, and uh, uh, that uh, I really thought that I wanted to write and, and be a teacher. And so I, uh, I saw in, in some, uh, it could have been the law journal, some publication, that there was a problem in the, about the Constitution uh, being unclear about uh, how you deal with a case of disability. I said, oh, this interests me. And, uh, and I, I wanted to know why there was a problem and uh, thought this was something that was manageable in terms of doing a, a, a law review article. So, and then I had a classmate, Lou Viola, uh, who had this file of clippings of Eisenhower's disability, in which he gave me. And then I knew after looking at that as well, this is something I want to uh, work on. And then that article is published in the October 1963 issue of, of the Law Review. And and you sent it around to some, uh, some different people in government and academia? Yeah, I was trying to get uh, interest generated in the subject. And, uh, and I, I remember sending one to Arthur Crock of the New York Times. And, uh, and uh, he, he said, uh, thanks for the reprint. He said that the two of us seem to be the only people in the country interested in, in, in this problem. And, uh, and I did have, uh, but there were others interested in it. That wasn't uh, accurate. Uh, 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 I had communications with the uh, president's office, President Kennedy, with his brothers, and uh, with Nixon and others, sending around a reprint and asking if, uh, if the, uh, uh, trying to draw their comments. And I, so I had a lot of nice acknowledgments and, uh, at that time. And some of those acknowledgments included uh, from Father James Finley, who was then the chairman of the Fordham uh, Political Science Department, but would become the president of the university. Uh, former Dean William Hughes Mulligan, uh, both of these letters are on the screen now, uh, responded to your, uh, to your article. Um, Hubert Humphrey, who would become vice president, uh, responded saying he has a long history or long interest in this subject and will give the article careful attention. This is November 4th, 1963. Um, Richard Nixon, uh, 
responded, saying, this is a subject in which I am most interested, and says that he'll respond, he'll respond when his schedule lightens up. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, Edward Kennedy, on November 5th, 1963, uh, acknowledges the letter and says that he'll, uh, and says that he appreciates receiving it. And then Robert Kennedy, who's the Attorney General then, uh, responds on November 13th, 1963, uh, saying, I appreciate your bringing it to my attention as this subject uh, is something that we've been studying here in the department for some time. Uh, you also sent a letter to the New York Times that was published on November 17th, 1963. That, this is the Sunday before uh, the, the JFK assassination. Um, could you just talk about the, the period that, that started here and, and how, um, how this all unfolded? Well, um, uh, probably one of the uh, worst days of my life was uh, the day that President Kennedy was assassinated. Uh, I was in a state of shock. Uh, he, he so uh, inspired me and so many of my generation. And, uh, and as I was dealing with... Uh, what I felt at that time, I started to get calls. CBS called and they said that they would want to do a program on presidential succession. Uh, other, other people in, in the media called uh, if, uh, for information. And, and, and part of that, I think, was due to the fact that, uh, maybe a significant part of that, was due to the fact that uh, on Sunday, November 24th, Arthur Kroc, whom I mentioned, uh, wrote a major column in the New York Times and he made reference to uh, my reprint. And, uh, and that uh, drew, drew attention. And that's, that's this column right here, Arthur Crock saying, one of the best studies of the subject of, of presidential inability was published by John Furick in the October 1963 issue uh, of the Fordham Law Review. And then it, it lays out uh, your proposal that uh, constitutional amendment is the best way to, uh, to solve the problem. Um, you then became involved uh, in a special conference convened by the American Bar Association to talk about the issue. The American Bar Association had an interest in the subject. They had a position on the subject, as did the, the Bar of New York. And uh, the, all, uh, the positions were all consistent. Give Congress the power to decide uh, how to deal with the subject, basically, and would clarify that the, uh, uh, the vice president would be an acting president uh, uh, in the case of inability, and in the other three cases of death, resignation, and removal, the uh, vice president would serve for the rest of the term, which had been uh, the precedent as of, as of that point. Uh, and I understand from Lowell Beck, who's, who's written a recent book on lobbying, it's a great book, uh, that uh, they, they, they saw the article and they thought that uh, this commission that they set up of, uh, I think, 12 people uh, would I think is what he said to me would benefit from having a, a young lawyer who had written recently on the subject, so I was invited to participate. And, uh, and then uh, the work of that group uh, 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 largely mirrors what's in the 25th Amendment today. Uh, uh, and working with Senator Birch Bayh, who independently of, of that had put into Congress uh, the month after the president's assassination a, a, a proposal uh, that uh, to deal with the subject that uh, uh, bears a striking similarity to what's in the 25th Amendment. It's, it's a, not a uh, significant uh, uh, similarity. And his proposal, in turn, benefited from uh, proposals that were uh, there in the Eisenhower years. And, uh, uh, but interestingly enough, uh, 
Senator Kefauver, who chaired the uh, Senate committee, and uh, Senator Keating of New York, both had come together in June of 63 uh, to have hearings on the subject. And they, they were going to support, as I understand it, the, uh, the, the idea of giving Congress uh, the power to deal with that. Senator Kefauver died in August of 63. Senator Barr became the chair of that committee. And he had a different approach. His, his approach had much more uh, detail in the Constitution on how to deal with this. And it, it does reflect a lot of ideas that were around in the Eisenhower years, but uh, they, didn't, they didn't go anywhere. I mean, they had hearings, but uh, there were too many different views about uh, who should declare a uh, president disabled uh, to uh, uh, end up with a consensus at that time. And uh, Professor Goldstein, you've, you've studied the uh, drafting uh, of the amendment. Um, you focused on some of the principles that underlied and some of the lessons that can be taken from, from this period. Uh, could you reflect on that? Well, it, w it was, uh, I mean, it was an extraordinary effort because, I mean, first of all, you know, t to get a constitutional amendment through is, is an extraordinary effort. I mean, we've only had 27 of them and 10 were in the Bill, were the Bill of Rights, two others were right at the beginning, three were the post-Civil War amendments. Um, so, you know, you need two-thirds of the House, two-thirds of the Senate, and then three-fourths of the states. Constitutional amendments don't happen every day. And, um, and particularly, this was a subject that uh, people didn't get exercised about. People didn't feel that they had a uh, personal stake in dealing with presidential continuity. So while there was some attention um, and, and some ideas were percolating during the Eisenhower period, uh, it was really only after the Kennedy assassination that, and Senator Bai becoming involved that, that he really seized the, 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 the moment uh, and pushed forward. And I think that some of the ideas that were implicit in the 25th Amendment were that, first of all, that presidential continuity was, was tremendously important, and that, um, that what that meant was that you had to have a successor in the nuclear age who was prepared, you had to have a, a successor who was, uh, who was um, uh, in harmony with the, uh, with the previous president, um, in both a succession or a disability situation, um, and that you had to have party continuity, that it wouldn't work to have a, a shift of party, uh, particularly in the disability uh, context, but also um, um, in the succession context. The idea that really for the first time that the vice presidency had become important and that the vice president was part of the executive branch, this was an idea that, you know, that very much came through in Dean Ferrick's articles and then in the ABA uh, consensus and then in the uh, work of Senator Bai and his um, committee. Um, the idea that, um, that whoever was the successor, that it ought to be somebody who would be chosen by in harmony with, consistent with the president, but that there ought to be some sort of a democratic connection. Um, and so the idea in section two was that the president would nominate somebody uh, to fill a vice presidential vacancy, but that person had to be confirmed by the Senate and the House. It's the only confirmation that, t that requires the House um, to act as well. And in one sense, in terms of constitutional principles, that was designed to sort of 
in a way to provide an, a, a democratic check and a democratic pedigree for the vice president, but also to, in effect, reflect the way in which presidents and vice presidents are selected. That with the House and the Senate both being involved, you had virtually the same number of people voting as would vote in the Electoral College. Um, but the other thing that was, was significant about including the House was that from a strategic standpoint, it was also a way of getting the House of Representatives to go along with the amendment. In other words, that part of the legislative genius of Senator Bayh and the others was that the House would be much more likely to, to uh, go along with an amendment to provide for replacing a vice presidency and putting a new vice president in line ahead of the existing speaker if the House felt that it was part of the process in, in confirming the new vice president. So those were some of the, the principles, um, I think, that were involved. This is Fordham Conversations on 90.7 WFUV. I'm John Rogan. Recently, I moderated a discussion at Fordham Law School about the 25th Amendment and what would happen if a president wasn't able to perform his or her powers and duties. The discussion was between Fordham Law Professor John Fierick and Professor Joel Goldstein of St. Louis University School of Law. It was held to mark the 50th anniversary of the 25th Amendment's ratification. After the amendment was ratified on February 10, 1967, the White House scheduled a ceremony and Fierick had an invitation. The president doesn't have a role technically with constitutional amendments. Once three-fourths of the states ratified, that's it. But President Johnson wanted to have a ceremony and, uh, and proclaim it, uh, have it proclaimed at the ceremony. And I was invited. And when I got to the airport that morning, uh, all the planes were shut down. And, and Orson Martin, who was now the president of the American Bar Association, uh, when he showed up, I said, I guess the planes are going to uh, uh, start flying again. Uh, and he then turned around and said he's going back to his law office. So I just stood there waiting for a plane to uh, go to Washington. A plane did uh, go to Washington. I, I arrived after the uh, ceremony was, uh, I arrived at the White House with the uh, telegram, said I had been invited to the ceremony. Uh, they, uh, they said, go up to the White House. So I walked up the, the path to the White House, opened the door of the White House. Ceremony had just ended at that point. And uh, the Secret Service saw this fellow with this uh, uh, valise, and they said, what are you, what are you doing here? <laughs> and, uh, and then Congressman Poff saw me, and he, he was flowing out to meet the president. He said, stand, uh, stand with him. So, I, uh, so I, uh, I, I was among the first to see the president, uh, with, uh, thanks to uh, Congressman Poff. And then a few days later, uh, somebody from the White House sent me a picture. So the, the amendment's ratified, uh, and it's used uh, probably sooner than anyone expected. Um, I was shocked to uh, see uh, uh, Vice President resign, Agnew resign, in September of, uh, of 73, and uh, the 25th Amendment had to be used for the first time to uh, 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 fill the vacancy in the vice presidency. And, uh, and uh, it was filled by Gerald Ford, who was the minority leader of the House. He was the ideal, an ideal person because he could command the support of the Congress, and the, ref, and, and the confirmation took less than two months. And the shock again when, uh, uh, the following August, the President of the United States, uh, who probably was, on, uh, you know, he had been told, from what I gather in press reports, that if he didn't resign, he was going to be impeached. And he did, he resigned. And, uh, and Ford became the president. 
And now Ford had the opportunity to fill a vacancy in a vice presidency, and he nominated uh, Nelson Rockefeller, then governor of New York. And Rockefeller was confirmed in, uh, uh, within four months, so it was a longer period. And, uh, and the nation uh, survived. The nation, uh, having lost its president, elected president and vice president, uh, uh, survived because of the stability uh, that the 25th Amendment, Section 2, uh, 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 provided for. The 25th Amendment would be used three more times after the Watergate era. President Ronald Reagan implicitly invoked it in 1985 to temporarily transfer his powers and duties to Vice President George H.W. Bush prior to undergoing cancer surgery. Two decades later, President George W. Bush invoked the amendment twice, first in 2002 and again in 2007, to temporarily transfer power to Vice President Dick Cheney before undergoing procedures under general anesthesia. Fierk and Goldstein also discussed the remaining gaps in the presidential succession system, including the lack of procedures for declaring the vice president disabled. It's a significant flaw because if the vice president is disabled, some of the 25th Amendment's procedures can't be used. The president can't transfer his powers and duties without an able vice president to transfer those powers to. And a president who can't communicate that he's disabled can't be declared disabled without the participation of the vice president. The full video of Fierk and Goldstein's discussion will be on the Fordham Law Library website's 25th Amendment archive. A link is on WFUV's Fordham Conversations webpage. The archive includes the letters we discussed earlier, a photo of Fierk and President Johnson at the White House, and a collection of 25th Amendment scholarship. This has been Fordham Conversations. I'm John Rogan.